to the Doll Podcast. I'm your host, Louisa Maxwell. My guest is Stuart Holbrook, president of Therios Auction House. Stuart travels the world in search of precious dolls. And every year we meet in Vienna, Austria to discuss what's happening in the world of dolls. We have so much to talk about that this is a two-part podcast. Last time we had part one, where we discussed Australian collectors and their fabulous collections and Stuart's new book, Never Ending Stories, telling the tales behind iconic objects. If you missed part one, you can find it on Apple Podcasts or on our website, www.dollpodcast.com. Now, in part two, we discuss how the definition of a doll is changing and the art of the Japanese doll. We pick up our conversation discussing how the pandemic changed auctions and the way we buy dolls and why more of us than ever before are collecting dolls. Welcome again to the Doll Podcast, where we resume our conversation about dolls. It's always a great pleasure to welcome you on the podcast. It's wonderful to be here as well and and always in my second home, Vienna. And uh, thank you for having me. Stuart, you bring people together for auction events. But of course, the Mm -hmm. pandemic changed all that and we had to collect from home. But collect we did. Mm -hmm. And we bid at auction and it became a kind of a way of expressing something during a time that was very stressful. Mm -hmm. We had at least this marvelous entertainment of various auctions online and things to hope for and dream about. Mm -hmm. And in July 2022, you had your first live auction in two and a half years. Mm. What was it like ascending the podium to a live rather than virtual audience? I remember the night before and I was thinking, you know, I don't, Louisa, I, I, I think you'd know me long enough to know I don't really get nerves over anything. I mean, I just stick me in front of a crowd. I don't care if it's 200 people, 20 people or 20,000 people. Put me in front of a crowd and I am in my element and I don't even think about it. In the words of show business, I think Stuart just thinks showtime. Let's do it. And I don't even prepare. It's just get up and do it. And I'm in my element. It was interesting that the night before, because here I had spent two years auctioning to a camera. Now, I knew there was a crowd out there and there were thousands of people all over the world. But, you know, it was still a camera. And that was nerve wracking in itself in, in the beginning. You know, because I didn't have the crowd to feed off. I didn't have the laughter. I didn't have the faces. I didn't have that element of camaraderie within a crowd that, you know, as a, you being a performer for many years as well in, in your work, you know that any performer, they feed off of a crowd. That is, that is the energy they use to perform. Yes. And so... Learning to do it in front of a camera was, for the first time, having to build my own energy in a crowd from almost a fantasy imagination of a crowd being there. Um, So suddenly now, here I go back again, and there's actual people sitting there in front of me. And I'm thinking to myself, my God, do I remember remember how to do this? (laughs) And... When I got back up on that stage, I walked up and I looked down at the crowd and, you know, I was a little shaky at first, but then within about a minute, 
I was right back into the swing of things and could feel, and again, that amazing moment of, of here I am, I'm pulling energy out of the crowd, and then they just took me on a ride with them. Yes. So, you know, and, and that's any performer say, I don't want to say I'm a performer because I'm not. That's not my job. My job is to bring the dolls up and, and oversee the, the auctioning and process of sale of these dolls. But there's an element of performance within it. And there needs to be a presence and, and, and there needs to be humor and there needs to be fun and there needs to be empathy in the process of being up on that stage. And um, it came flooding back, um, not because I knew how to do it, but because the crowd took me with them, as I said, and I, and I felt it again. Interestingly enough, and I say this with, with frankness, I did notice a change, though. Oh. Things have changed. There is a difference, and maybe it was just the first sale back, you know, first auction back, and so people were getting their legs, but there was no question that even at that auction, at the National Doll Convention, with hundreds in attendance, even then, the internet was heavily dominating the bidding. Oh. So it's no, I don't think it's going to be, there's no doubt in my mind that over the past two years, our world and our society has taken a fairly significant shift in the way we do things. And I don't think we are ever going to see live events like we did at Mildred Seeley, as an example. You know, that auction when we had it or Shirley Temple, love Shirley Temple. You know, sales where we had five, six hundred people in attendance and an energy and people wanted to fly in from all over the world to be there. I think there will be a certain element of a core group that love to travel and love to come to the auctions and enjoy the camaraderie of other collectors, enjoy seeing the dolls um, in person. But the reality is that we've become so trained in the last two years in doing everything online and the ability that we don't have to go and travel to these events that people have learned to do it otherwise. And they're, they're accustomed to it. As a collector, over the years, I've watched the specter of online bidding mm -hmm. grow and grow and grow. Mm -hmm. And if I really wanted something, I'd try and be in the room because I definitely had an advantage. Mm -hmm. But now it's moved. It's so fast paced. But the advantage is that I can bid on one of your auctions from my home in Vienna. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And as, as doll collecting has become more and more global, um, we're seeing the internet begin to play more and more of a part of it. That was even before COVID. And now with COVID, it really has, I noticed that this last, last auction still become the dominant force in an auction event. Why we've moved a lot of our sales where we used to travel every auction to every city and all the hotels, you know, we, we realized that there are some auctions that benefit from the idea of this event happening in a unique city, in a unique hotel, and to mount this wonderful moment. The National Con UFDC Convention is an example, our January event, or a really large, incredible collection with a legacy name that needs to be, should have something 
built around it in place. Um, but for a lot of auctions, an example, our, we have a fabulous sale in November we're doing. Incredible dolls that most people would look at and say, what's well, one of the best auctions I've seen in years at Thuriald's? We don't need to travel that auction necessarily. We have now built out a gallery in our, in our location in Annapolis, Maryland. Uh, we spent the last six months uh, developing this small gallery that seats about 40 people maximum uh, with displays as well and having the auctions there. So we can bring in a small crowd, which is what we were getting at a lot of those sales anyway, in person. And then we have a huge production, more of a production approach to the broadcast on the internet so that uh, we are broadcasting all over the world and people are bidding. And that makes much more sense for a lot of the sales than we save the location ones for these big mega events typically surrounding a personality or person or moment like the UFDC convention. Yes. So we've learned a lot from it. We're all adjusting and adapting. Sure. We may see that the crowds get bigger and bigger over the next year or two as people slowly start. And there's still a lot of people not traveling that we see people will start coming out more and more and there will maybe see it return to sort of 2019 levels as far as in-house attendance. There's no doubt that in the other essence of this, as I've talked about before in your episodes, that COVID has actually increased the number of collectors worldwide. Wow. And why the market has been far more robust over the past few years than it has been in decades um, because of the increase in collectors. So really fascinating to see the crowds in person are going down, but the number of people collecting worldwide is going up and engaging in the auctions. It's fascinating. And also... Do you realize that the way you described your facility in Maryland mm -hmm. is like a television studio? Mm -hmm. So the auction is becoming entertainment mm -hmm. and we tune in. Absolutely. I mean, there are people developing software now for auction houses that do not only the live online bidding, but allow a social cafe to be going on in during the auction where you are all talking to each other. You now, chat. You chat basically with each other. Now, I've been a little reluctant on this because gosh only knows what some people will say, but it is going to be interesting in the car auction world, actually. This has been a prominent uh, new feature. And you'll have hundreds of men during the auction of one particular car going off. They're chatting away back and forth their comments and here and there about the car and about people bidding and what it's been going for. And it, it becomes a social chat room during the auction virtually from collectors all over the world. This is something we could see over time develop and creating a virtual room. I mean, you hear about virtual worlds now, you know, that, that look at what Facebook has done with their investment in, in, in the metaverse. And, and this is what we could very well see, not tomorrow, not next month, not probably even next year, but in a few years that the auction becomes a virtual immersive environment. A virtual event? Yeah. Imagine. More than a, more than a virtual event today you yeah. hear about. You hear virtual event. Sure. I mean a, a true immersed virtual experience. Where, like you are seeing yourself sitting in a room with hundreds of people. Could even be a, an avatar that could be involved. And everybody's sitting in this virtual room that's created with conversations and everything going on. It, it, it's going to be fascinating to watch. I mean, who in the 90s 
in the early 90s would have imagined where we would have been in 2010 or now as far as online bidding and and how that's all evolved. I mean, so who knows where we'll be in another 10 or 20 years. I know I was sitting in sale rooms with a paddle at Christie's yes. in the 90s. Yes. Yeah. When I, where I bought my yeah. first fashion doll. Yeah, I, where phone bidding was cutting edge. Yeah. <laughs> wow, I, I was phone bidding. Heck, I remember when faxes were out and we thought it was cutting edge when people could fax their bids in. Wow. It was. Yeah. No, phone bids could be fun. I remember uh, once I had to do the phone bid with Christie's and the person on the other end of the phone, I realized was one of the experts from the British Antiques Roadshow. Okay. And I'm talking to Bunny Campioni, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm more overcome with I'm talking to because she's a oh she was a legend I legend mean, a, absolute and a charming legend. charming woman yeah, very nice lady and I won my bid on my doll mm-hmm. which was extraordinary my first Simon mm-hmm. and How Big fashion doll mm-hmm. so those experiences stay with you and it's a theater and it's a memory and it's something that's very important it's like what you said earlier about the collector and that moment in time for me mm-hmm. and I still have that doll in my collection mm-hmm. she's here today. That's really a fantastic memory. And I love this idea that we can grow this community more Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. make it even more vibrant and interesting. And it's already very vibrant and interesting Mm -hmm. with collectors who are Mm -hmm. traveling the world and all Mm -hmm. these exciting Mm -hmm. milestones we're hearing about among collectors. In our podcast last year, we explored the role of the doll as art. Theriots often takes dolls to new highs, opening up the interpretation of what a doll is. In October 2022, you auctioned a Japanese collection of dolls and figures amassed by art collector Michael Avieras, and it was called The Golden Age of Nino, featuring important examples that had been exhibited at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Minge Museum, and the Morikama Museum in Japan. In Japanese culture, are these figures considered dolls or art objects? First of all, I was laughing at you working on the pronunciations of these things. Can you imagine me doing the entire auction and having to do these countless pronunciations and trying not to offend people in the process? Because it was definitely the most difficult pronunciation. You think Caterfelder Poopenfabrik is difficult to pronounce? (laughs) Let me tell you, this Japanese auction was a struggle for me, but I I hopefully got through it. Did I get them right? You got them right. Yay! Yeah. How did I do it? Yeah. I watched Florence on YouTube. <laughs> okay, well, there you, that, that's the best place to do. So, yeah, it was a really fascinating auction. And we did this uh, alongside Alan Scott Pate, who is the leading expert in the world and, and, and just a brilliant man on the subject. And I think, again, that has served as the foundation for both the market and for knowledge uh, of the history of these objects. Talk about never-ending stories. I mean, Alan could sit there for hours and eloquently pontificate about the history of each of these objects and what makes them special in Japanese culture and history. And they have countless never-ending stories. So it was a really fascinating sale for me from the perspective of education and learning about these dolls a bit more. Uh, Working with Alan was a pleasure. Doing the auction was very unique also in that it helped me see sort of the niche market for these particular things. Alan has helped create a nice crossover market into standard doll collectors. And that has helped 
push this market up to a certain level. Interestingly enough, you would think there would be a great market for these in Japan. There's not. Wow. Very Japanese. So Japanese doll collectors, what do they want? French dolls. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. French babies. Um, so it, it's it's so fascinating to me to watch that who really collects these are American collectors and European collectors that love Japanese culture like this and collect these dolls. So it was an interesting sale to see the potential for them, but also to see some of the things that kind of make it a little more difficult. One is the size of many of these items. They're big. Oh, they're, they're, People don't realize how large scale some of them are. Now, there are many small pieces and many normal, what I would call cabinet-sized dolls, but there's larger ones as well. Many of them also can have very uh, uh, harsh faces, especially the samurais and things like this. So you have to have a special sort of appreciation of the background and history of them as well. But there are many that uh, pieces that I think doll collectors are truly missing out. Ichimatsu dolls are play dolls. They And they were the essence of sort of inspiring many of the European dolls of the same time. Their construction methods and, and their, their body styles were all very much inspiring European dolls. It's a developing market again, but we love, and one of the joys of my work is challenging people. You and I were talking about an artist earlier, a musician we both like, and that's Sting. Yeah. I think about if you look back on on Sting and what he did in his early years with the police and that kind of music, if that's all he did over his entire career, that would be fine, right? Yeah. Would be fine. Sure. But even as an artist and a musician, not that I'm calling myself an artist or a musician or, or any anything in that creative function, you do want to challenge yourself as well as challenge your your in his case, listeners, in my case, collectors, to see other things that they may not have that are sort of out of their wheelhouse, let's call it. Yeah. And to imagine, oh, yeah, you know, I've seen these dolls, but I never really understood them. And there's nothing better than an auction to educate people on these particular genres. So um, that's why you saw Sting do albums that were more jazz oriented, that had many different genres and, and feels to them. We like to introduce to collectors different things, like the Neapolitan figures from Buktis, if you recall. That collection discussed the doll as art. The Japanese dolls. Um, all of these things are, again, an introduction and education to collectors to go beyond their standard every day and really explore the depths of their collecting to see how these connect to everything we might term as classic. So is the definition of what a doll is changing as we get all these various types coming in? The Hane Butkus collection, which was mostly wooden figures, but very detailed with beautiful mm -hmm. vignettes. Mm -hmm. And now we have these fabulous Japanese dolls. Neapolitan, yeah, yeah. so many different categories. and So international. It's interesting in that I have always never liked the term dolls. Wow. I, I would, because for many who are not in the collecting field, we're fine with using the term dolls within collecting. It, it, it serves a purpose. It's an easy word. You know, doll is four letters and, 
you understand what you're saying. The problem is that to the mainstream world, a doll has a connotation of a childhood object, a, a plaything, uh, something that is lesser in importance from an artistic standpoint. You know, they they have visions of Dighty babies and Beanie Babies or whatever, or American dolls, you know. So it's very hard to really explain to people that this is not necessarily a doll. And how I try to, so here, it's funny because I write this in my book, is when people, when I'm sitting on a plane and people ask me what I do for a living, you know, the common question, oh, what do you do for a living? You know, as we get into a conversation. You can imagine that moment where I say, I have to think about how do I say, well, I sell dolls. You know, can, can you imagine the expressions? I, I mean, I've seen all sorts of, and they're, they're kind of like, the first thing is you sell dogs? I said, no, 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 I sell dolls. I don't understand. And, and, and they just look at me puzzled. So I've learned over the years to explain to people first that I sell decorative arts. I sell three-dimensional decorative arts from the 17th to 20th century through the 20th century. And that has something they can grab onto. And they suddenly become very, oh, really? Well, what constitutes a three-dimensional decorative art of the 17th to 20th century? I said, well, one of the great places to look and to understand that is are the dolls produced in the 19th century by French and German uh, artists. Dolls, yes, actually dolls from that period were three-dimensional sculptures created many times by leading artists throughout Europe. Oh, really? That's fascinating. I never knew that. Yes, and it even extends all the way back to the 17th century in Italy. Have you traveled and looked at some of the churches and saw the the crib scenes and the Neapolitan figures. Oh, yes. Well, they are, in essence, very much a part of this as well. So interestingly enough, we talked about how we can take doll collectors and expand their breadth of, of understanding of what encompasses our world by offering Japanese dolls and Neapolitan dolls. You can also take regular off-the-street people and help them understand a French bebe or a French fashion doll by explaining Neapolitan dolls and Japanese dolls because that to them seems more important, oh. seems more relevant to art and suddenly draw them in to that connection. On the same token, you can use Barbie as a wonderful example of, of a doll that everybody knows, everybody relates to and explain the idea of Barbie and how it evokes fashions of that period. And uh, they get it. And then they begin to understand more. So I've completely forgotten what was at the core of the original question because I went off on one of my usual tangents. Yes. But, you know. The original question was about mm. is the definition of what a doll is changing? Mm. Yes. And you, in these conversations with people, are actually helping change the perception mm -hmm. of a doll as a three-dimensional piece of art. And even as you say that here to me now, I'm thinking, wow, yeah, each of my dolls in my collection has a very special artistic note. Mm -hmm. Even, you know, a mass-produced doll right. of the time is extraordinary. Right.
There are many doll collectors who are probably cringing because their basis for collecting and their love of collecting is something that extends to the childhood experience. And, and I, I don't want to take that away from people. I very much understand that. I very much realize that's at, at the core of a lot of why we collect dolls, but it is not the only thing. I think when you say it's a definition of doll changing, no, not for collectors who have that essence of childhood as being at the core, that's that nostalgia of childhood being at the core of their drive. But if we want dolls to expand onwards in the mind of the general public, that people appreciate them more, that people understand that they're not some silly thing that, you know, someone is collecting that they realize it from the perspective less of a doll, more as a three-dimensional art form that represents the human experience. And they're so much a part of our lives. I mean, definitely from my own point of view, my collection, yes, some things are nostalgia. Mm -hmm. Having Cindy again is definitely nostalgia. But a French fashion's not nostalgia. A French fashion is a piece of art, mm -hmm. and also it's a piece of history. And it's something that you have to preserve and you have to take care of. Right. Cindy can languish a little bit in a box, mm -hmm. but French fashion can't. Right. And this is our role as collectors, mm -hmm. the role we play as preservers of history and preservers of these dolls' stories. Mm -hmm. So, Stuart, it's always a pleasure to meet and hear your wonderful stories on the Doll Podcast. Thank you for joining us once again. Louisa, thank you so much for uh, having me on again. And uh, I'll see you in Vienna again next year. Oh, we're so looking forward to it. Thank, thank you, Stuart. You. Thank you for joining us on The Doll Podcast. To find out more about the dolls we discussed, please go to www.dollpodcast.com. There, we have many photographs and links so you can find out more about all these wonderful dolls. We're also on Facebook and Instagram as The Doll Podcast. Thank you for joining us on The Doll Podcast. We look forward to welcoming you next time.